On today's episode, we have a couple of intense femme fatale thrillers, starting with Basic Instinct from 1992, followed by Gone Girl from 2014. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by, I do appreciate it. Today on the show, like I said, some pretty intense thrillers, but you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about just my podcasting experience, just having guests on. You know, I really love to have guests on, and when I record with guests, it's like I have to figure out how I want to set everything up. If the person's in person, you know, it's like you got to set up the room or at least have some kind of idea of, okay, how am I going to set up my mic so it sounds good coming through, you know, in the recording. There's also, if I'm recording with someone remotely and they've got their computer at home and I've got mine at my home, I just have to basically set up through a service or something They have a bunch of them online that are just, you pay for a certain amount of hours or whatever, and then you can just do whatever you want. You can record your whole episode on their service, and then you can download the file after the fact, and it's pretty nifty. I would say that there are a lot of inherent benefits to having guests on. I mean, honestly, it really gets a lot of discussion going about the movies, and it really adds something. I mean, it's obvious that... It's better if you get more perspectives and things like that at times. And I I just, I really enjoy having people on. But I think about trying to reach out to other podcasts and say, hey, could I be a guest on your show? Or hey, would you guys want to be a guest on mine? Or things like that. And naturally, my social anxiety kind of keeps that from actually happening. But it's still pretty solid. It's a pretty good option I think that I still need to explore. I mean, if I had, if I reached out to, for instance, one of the podcasts that I like that I've found on Instagram is called The Film Obsessed Couple. They have a pretty solid podcast and they do kind of a similar thing to me, but I believe they're a married couple. So they are talking back and forth about a movie that is seemingly random and it's just it's always very well concocted, and I'd, I'd love to go on their show, and I'd love to have them on mine. But obviously, it's kind of difficult to arrange that sort of thing. You don't know these people. You don't, who wants to pay for what, or what have you. It's not always an ideal situation, but I just thought I'd share a little bit of that. That's why you don't see me having guests on as regularly as some podcasts do, and I don't really know how those podcasts do it, but it is certainly easier for me to just record my own episodes and not have to have that extra aspect of the whole thing where I've got to include another person's schedule and other things like that. So I guess we'll just dive right into these movies, starting with Basic Instinct, released on March 20th, 1992, directed by Paul Verhoeven, and he also directed RoboCop, previously covered on this podcast, one of my all-time favorite movies ever. He also did the original Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and that is a definite solid movie. I mean, I honestly love that movie. It's fucking great. He did Showgirls, which... I've never seen, I just always remember noting it as a kid as it being the only NC-17 movie I had ever heard of. 
and I've seen bits and pieces of it on TV because basically they did all this weird editing with that movie to put it on TV where there are these topless scenes and stuff and they'll like digitally impose this really shitty looking bra on the women that are topless and it doesn't really look good. And I haven't really heard many good things about it being a great movie or anything like that, so I haven't checked it out. Then there's also Starship Troopers that he did, and that's kind of in the same vein as RoboCop of like a satirical type thing, but it's more on a military level. And I honestly, I really enjoy that movie. I haven't watched it in a long time now, but it's definitely worth the watch. I would say check it out. For the writer, we have Joe Esterhaus, and he did Flashdance, another one of those ones that I have never seen And I haven't really heard anything but mediocre mixed reviews on, so I haven't really checked it out. And he also did Jade with David Caruso and a couple other people. And that movie was really dumb. I mean, it was just not a good movie. I don't really understand who could possibly enjoy that. But it's in the same vein as Basic Instinct and movies that were popular like that at the time. So for producers, we have Alan Marshall and Mario Kassar. Alan Marshall did Bugsy Malone, which is a movie with Scott Bayo, and it's about these little kids that are basically they're made up to be mobsters in the 20s during Prohibition era. It is just legitimately terrible. I don't. Wow. It, it is so fucking bad. Then he did Midnight Express, and that's one that is one of the most depressing movies I've ever seen. You'll see a lot of reviews about it saying that it's spectacular and it's a must watch or whatever, but it's just not really that good to me at all. He also did Pink Floyd The Wall, which I've never seen, and I am to understand that I probably need to be on like LSD to truly enjoy it, so I probably won't be getting around to seeing that one anytime soon. And last but not least, he produced Cliffhanger, and that was a decent one with Sylvester Stallone. I mean, I remember it being a little cheesy, but I mean, it was an, an intense movie. It was very full of action and things like that. It was it was pretty good. Then we have Mario Casar, who did Chaplin, which is the biopic about Charlie Chaplin, starring Robert Downey Jr. And he, I apparently, I mean, he did a great job in this movie. I've never seen it, and I really like Charlie Chaplin. I have to be really in the mood for his movies. And Charlie Chaplin, if you ever get a chance, he has this movie called The Great Dictator, and he gives this speech at the end of it. It's the first movie that Charlie Chaplin ever did that he basically did dialogue in because all of his movies up to that point were like silent movies and really slapstick, silly humor and stuff like that. And then, of course, Mario Cassard also did Basic Instinct 2, which came out in 2006, and I assume nobody on Earth saw that movie, but whatever. So for the score, we have composer Jerry Goldsmith, and apparently he is quite the composer. I mean, he's done a lot of movies. He did Planet of the Apes, the original, which is a solid movie. Charlton Heston, written by Rod Serling, if I'm not mistaken, who is the guy that did the Twilight Zone original show. And that one is definitely worth checking out if you ever get a chance to watch the Twilight Zone. He did Alien, which is a movie by Ridley Scott, and it's basically a horror movie in space, and the alien is the terrifying monster that everybody's trying to run from, and it's one of my all-time faves. I really love it. He did Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is a solid first movie. I say, for my money, the first three Star Trek movies are the best Star Trek movies. 
I haven't watched much of the next generation type stuff with Patrick Stewart, but I I saw the first four Star Trek movies and the fourth one, I know a lot of fans really love that one and think it's great, but I just cannot get into that movie. I think it's a little too silly and ridiculous. He also did First Blood, which is another all-time favorite of mine, which is Sylvester Stallone plays this guy named John Rambo and he is trying to find his old war buddies and he can't find them. And when he comes walking through this town, this sheriff really gives him a hard time and tries to get him to leave because he doesn't want him hanging out and being a vagrant or whatever. But it's, I mean, it's really good. It's a very great action movie. It's it. so many movies have tried to rip it off since. And it's just a really well done one. And then last but not least, he did L.A. Confidential, which is another spectacular movie, very well made, very well told story in that one. The cast is immense. There's so many good people in that movie, and I just absolutely love it. So for the cast, Michael Douglas plays Detective Nick Curran, and he was in Romancing the Stone, which is a great adventure movie if you ever get a chance to check it out. It's highly enjoyable. I personally am not a huge Michael Douglas fan, but... I do like that movie, and it's got a lot of good humor in it and stuff. He was in Fatal Attraction, which is in the same vein as Basic Instinct. It's basically just, I mean, a a Fatal Attraction. I mean, the title says it all. I mean, Glenn Close is in it with him, and it's it's a pretty intense movie. I don't really remember it that super well, but it was just, it's one that stuck out on his list. He was in Wall Street with Charlie Sheen, and that one was pretty solid, I haven't watched it in years now. It's one I need to revisit. I really do think it's a good movie, honestly. It's just, I don't really remember a lot about it. And it's just, it's like that. But you get all of this cool 80s Wall Street talk and stuff. And he was also in one of my faves, Falling Down, directed by Joel Schumacher. It's about this guy who is basically just on his last leg and he can't fucking take it anymore. He's just fed up with society and stuff. And he just kind of goes on a little rampage through LA. I think it is. And it's just, it's very great. It's a well-told story. It's pretty simplistic, but it's highly enjoyable. Then we have Sharon Stone who plays Catherine Trammell. She was in Total Recall. And I already talked about that one a little bit. This was one of her first major roles She was in The Quick and the Dead, and I still need to see that one. That one's got, like, Leonardo DiCaprio in it, and it's got a bunch of other people, and I've just never really heard much about it at all. Nobody ever tells me, hey, you need to check this one out. She was in Casino, which is a Martin Scorsese movie, and Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci are also in that one, and I always kind of consider that one to be basically like Goodfellas, but in Vegas. I mean, you're getting a lot of the same people in that movie. And it's just, there's not a whole lot different. So that one's never really stood out to me as being that great. But last but not least for her, she was in The Mighty. And that's a movie that actually I only watched because my mom is a hardcore Gillian Anderson fan because she's a huge X-Files fan. And so she would legitimately watch any movie Gillian Anderson was in. And so Gillian Anderson shows up for a little bit in that movie and it's that's fucking it, but It's a really cool movie. It's about these two kids that become friends and they basically have these little adventures and things like that. 
Then we have Wayne Knight, who plays John Corelli, who obviously Wayne Knight played Newman on Seinfeld, and Seinfeld is an all-time great sitcom. I mean, I know it's not for everyone, but I fucking love it. I think it's great. And he was in Dirty Dancing, previously covered on this podcast, which is an all-time favorite of mine. Absolutely great. Just can't get enough of Dirty Dancing. He was also in Jurassic Park, which is another movie previously covered on this podcast, and that one is just epic. I mean, it is just an epic movie that it's just such a cool way that they did it. I mean, everything about it is just really well done. The only issue I have is that there's not much in the way of relatable characters in it, I don't feel like, but that's my only gripe. And last but not least with Wayne Knight, he was in Space Jam, which is the film that defined an entire generation. I still hold Space Jam near and dear, whether you like it or not. To be fair, Wayne Knight does not have much of a role in this movie, but he's kind of like one of the few household names in this movie, so I just wanted to talk about him a little bit. We have Jean Triplehorn, who plays Dr. Beth Garner, and she was in Waterworld with Kevin Costner, and that's about, that's basically like the road warrior if the entire world were consumed with water, and they're trying to find land, and it's a pretty cool concept. It does feel like a road warrior ripoff, but it's pretty solid. And she was also in The Firm, which is a movie I have not seen in maybe 25 years, I think. I saw it when it came out. I used to be big on those kinds of movies. And so it's like I watched it and it, I mean, it's a pretty solid movie. It's a John Grisham novel and it's, it's a very solid movie. I would definitely check that one out. I need to revisit myself. Then we have George Zunza, who plays Detective Gus Moran and Dennis Arndt, who plays Lieutenant Philip Walker. For casting notes, Sharon Stone was director Paul Verhoeven's choice, but was only offered the role of Catherine after 13 actresses had turned it down as Stone was not a marquee name at the time. Michael Douglas felt an established star was needed to play Catherine, so the movie would be carried by two well-known actors, and the risk of career damage would be also shared. He suggested Demi Moore or Michelle Pfeiffer for the part, but no actress of name was prepared to go completely nude for the role. Pfeiffer said that she found the idea of filming the erotic love scenes too daunting. She said, I just couldn't do that one because of the sexual parts, the nudity. My father was still alive, and I'm kind of prudish, and honestly, I'm not that uninhibited about my body. I'm modest. So, I mean, obviously, she was not a big fucking fan of the nudity in this movie, and that's completely understandable. So, Michael Douglas recommended Kim Basinger specifically for the role of Catherine Trammell, but she declined. Among those considered for or offered the role were Julia Roberts, Meg Ryan, Michelle Pfeiffer, Gina Davis, Kathleen Turner... Mariel Hemingway, and Demi Moore. For the plot synopsis, we have a detective investigates a woman's connection to a murder that played out the same way as in a book she authored. Then, the woman begins writing a book about the detective. So, let's dive right into this plot, guys. I'm fucking excited. There's a lot to talk about with this one, a lot of shit going on. So, it's only the opening credits, and at that point, I was already enjoying the really ominous thriller score thing. The credits are basically like a James Bond title sequence without the half-naked women silhouetted everywhere. Why in fuck's name does the director have to be credited twice in the opening credits? Like, it always says a blank film at the beginning or something and then directed by at the end or, 
you know, what, or maybe switch those two. I don't remember which one's which, but basically they get director credit twice in the opening sequence and I just don't understand it. So we get a sex scene right off the bat starting this movie. This dude's tied to a headboard while this woman is fucking him and she's super naked. No complaints here. Then she violently and repeatedly stabs him to death with something and blood is going fucking everywhere. Like, what a fucking turn on, man. They're deliberately making it unclear if it's Sharon Stone in this moment, but they obviously want you to think it is at least a little. So Michael Douglas's detective Nick Coran appears, presumably the next day, at the crime scene where the dude was stabbed. And I gotta say, I never really found Michael Douglas very likable. I mean, I like some of his movies, but I'm generally not a huge fan of him. The cops explain what they know about what happened and all the regular crime scene stuff. I won't bore you with too many details. I've got way too much to talk about. I should probably mention that the woman we saw stabbing him was using an ice pick to kill him. Apparently, the guy who died was a big deal, some big contributor to the mayor's campaign, and he was a former rock and roller and all this stuff. Nick is told not to fuck this up by a superior, which seems like a good route to go for most things. I wish my boss would give me a little daily don't fuck this up pep talk before each shift, you know, that'd be kind of nice. Nick and Detective Moran go to question Catherine Trammell, played by Sharon Stone, and she had been a known love interest of the victim, so that's why they're questioning her. But first, they meet her friend Roxy, who tells them where to find Catherine, because I guess Catherine wasn't at her primary address. I mean, she just basically wasn't around when they came, but what is presumably her lesbian lover is still at her house without her, and that kind of seems weird to me, but whatever. So they go out to some beach house where Catherine is, and there are some mediocre 90s sports cars in the driveway, and I feel like a lot of cars from the late 80s to late 90s left a lot to be desired in body design. So they find Catherine hanging out on this deck overlooking the water and they introduce themselves and she says that she already knows who they are somehow and I don't know if I'm just to assume Catherine is just clairvoyant or if Roxy just called her after they had left the primary residence. They tell her how the man was murdered and her reaction is like, big fucking deal. And then when they ask how long she'd been dating him, she said that she was fucking him, not dating him. She said that she'd been fucking him for like a year and a half or so. She says that she was out with him that night, but really didn't end up going home with him. And I gotta be honest, Sharon Stone is definitely really good looking. And I feel like with what little I've watched to this point, uh, with not remembering the first time I saw this movie, the movie already seems like deliberately over-sexualized. And I would say it probably goes a little way over the top at times, so just to be aware of it. I I haven't seen this movie since the 90s before this most recent watching, so, you know, it's one thing to be realistic with the way people really talk, but this is done gratuitously. Like, they are talking about fucking so openly. She says she's sorry the guy's dead, but that's only because she liked fucking him, and I mean, she's clearly trying to make herself look good here, you know? Seems like a real sweetheart who is incapable of hurting anyone. Yeah, uh, anyway, she says that she's done talking and they'll have to arrest her to get more out of her. And I don't really understand this, though, because even when they do arrest her later, she doesn't really act like she minds telling them stuff once they've arrested her, and she doesn't even ask for a lawyer or anything. I don't understand it. So there have been a lot of fuck words in this one already, and I really like it. Back at the station, this Dr. Beth Garner, played by Jean Triplehorn, who Nick goes to see after questioning Catherine, is a stone-cold fox in sexy specs. 
We find out that Dr. Beth and Nick have a romantic history, and Nick makes a joke about having developed calluses due to excess masturbation since they parted ways, which is a real laugh riot. Nick says that he hasn't been boozing, coking, or smoking, and we don't ever really get a clear picture of how bad his habits ever got, but clearly they were significant. So she lets him go when he asks, and on his way out, she tells him that she still misses him, and he kind of hesitates at the door, but doesn't actually turn back and just leaves. And Dr. Beth can most certainly do better than Michael Douglas, in my opinion. She should not be hung up on him, but we're to believe that she thinks she can't do better, so she's kind of stuck with that. So later, we hear a lot of the police findings regarding the physical evidence at the crime scene, and they talk about Catherine still being a suspect, and they give her background, and she's basically worth a lot of money. And it turns out that she was engaged at one point to another celebrity high roller, and she wrote a book a while back about a retired rock and roll star who got murdered by his girlfriend. And I feel like that's kind of fucking important. She's writing a book about that. So, and on that note, you can have a lot of circumstantial evidence against you, but if you're going around writing books like that, you're just kind of asking for trouble if they come true. But at the same time, it doesn't provide real proof that someone is guilty, even if it looks like it. So Nick is at home reading the book and basically finds out that the murder in the book is the same as in the case exactly, complete with illustration. Some specialist comes into the station and gives an analysis with Dr. Beth there for support, and the specialist says that what happened in the murder took a lot of premeditation and they're dealing with somebody very dangerous. They suggest that she'll use having written the book as an alibi and that she'll say no one would be dumb enough to write a book describing a murder and then commit a murder in real life in the same way. It does seem like an iffy thing. Like, people do write a lot of books about murders, and even more people read them. So, basically, Wayne Knight's character just says that anybody could have done it, and he doesn't really think that Catherine's a prime suspect. The fact that they actually had to have a specialist come in to tell them that a person in this scenario, where they're accused of a murder that played out in the same way as it was in the book they wrote... It's like they needed to bring somebody in just to have them go above and beyond the resources that they already have. It's just kind of crazy. Like, you couldn't figure that out on your own. So Nick and his partner Gus head out to the beach house again and take Catherine down to the station for questioning. Catherine is changing into her coot-coot peep show skirt, and she is changing where basically anyone could see her, and she knows that. I need a Catherine in my life, honestly. Someone who is willfully nude in locations that would make others uneasy. I'm all for it. And also, she seemingly mostly has sex with people before murdering them, so that's just downright courteous. Anyway, it seems like she knows stuff about Nick that she really shouldn't. Her confidence level is just through the roof. I mean, everything that she's saying is just intimidating or confident or titillating, and it's so fucking hot. I mean, it's just... I can't fucking believe it. So she tells them on the way to the station that her next book is about a detective who falls for the wrong lady, and that seems to be a very thinly veiled hint that the book is about Nick, but it seems like no one wants to acknowledge this. So she waves her right to an attorney and goes into the interrogation, which I don't get this. Why shut them down with the questioning earlier? She said she didn't want to answer any more questions unless she was under arrest, and then she just doesn't even want a lawyer when she's arrested? What the fuck is that? So they start questioning her, and she's basically manipulating this room full of men and indulging them and discussing her sexual desires and history and shit. And I'd like to say that if I was a cop, I wouldn't fall for it, but I'm kidding. I absolutely would fall for it. She'd have me hook, line, and sinker, no doubt. 
So she gives the excuse as to why she didn't kill the guy. She says she'd have to be pretty stupid to write a book about killing someone and then kill someone in real life the same way, which is what the specialist said she would say, the specialist that they needed to bring in from the outside for that kind of insight. She uncrosses her legs, and we get an iconic coot-coot show for maybe two seconds that she's giving to these four men interrogating her, and the camera, of course. So a little bit of trivia. In this scene, Stone's vulva was filmed as she uncrossed her legs. Stone later said she believed the characters not wearing underwear would only be alluded to and not shown, and I could see that. A little bit more trivia. According to a poll for the movie subscription service Love Film... Sharon Stone's infamous leg-crossing scene has been named the most paused, blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment in movies. She says that she has a degree in psychology, and she's obviously trying to get in everyone's head, and Nick's most of all, and it's pretty clearly working. They have her do a little lie detector test, which, as far as I know, is not something that could be used in court in most places, but I'm basing that entirely on fictional crime dramas, so I don't really know how that works. She passes the test with flying colors and has psychotically calm vitals, but Nick knows the test can be beaten. He's seen it before. So Nick takes her home, which seems like a great idea because, yeah, you know, affiliate yourself with her. And she talks a little bit more about his history on the ride. And it's like this cat and mouse game that she's fucking running. And it's not like he doesn't realize it, but... He acts like he'll outsmart her, and I think it's pretty fucking clear that he will not outsmart her. So Nick has his guard up, but he obviously desperately wants to fuck her, which I totally understand. I can't understate how appealing Sharon Stone is in this. I mean, how critical that is to Nick's actions in this movie and making it all believable and stuff. I mean, it's just great. So Nick goes to the bar with some other officers and has to defend himself to them with his actions regarding her and they think he's getting a little too close with the suspect, and he's just being a dumb shit, basically, in their eyes. So Daniel Von Bargen, who was in Super Troopers in Seinfeld, plays a character named Nilsson, who comes from another table and starts to really antagonize Nick, who has broken his sobriety. I guess he's just another detective. I'm not really sure what his job title is, but at the very least, he works at the police department. So Nick runs into Beth at the bar, and they go back to her place, which I understand 100%. You won't find me turning down any offers from Dr. Beth. So they almost immediately start doing it, of course, because this isn't a movie about foreplay. And he's being particularly violent and erratic with her. And we have boobs, ladies and gentlemen. More boobs after the initial murder scene, which were boobs with an asterisk at one point because I had to look past blood to look at them. It's turning into more of a rape by the second, though, and that's unpleasant. She initially doesn't like it, the way Nick's acting, and then all of a sudden she starts to enjoy it because movies are classy like that sometimes. I mean, it couldn't just be that she told him to get rough with her. She just had to not want it and then be okay with it, so every scumbag who sees this just takes it as a green light to be rough. Anywho, Beth tells him after the sex that she knew Catherine in school, and he ends up pissing her off, asking too many questions, and she storms out. So back at the station, they find out another ice pick in bed murder happened with a professor when Catherine was going to school there, and I noticed that sometimes the score of this movie almost seems like it's going to turn into the Ghostbusters theme, and I get really excited, and then it doesn't, and I'm just broken up about it. 
So Nick gets in a high-speed chase with Catherine on one of these winding highways that goes around mountains and stuff, and it gets pretty fucking intense, and he tails her to a house in town, and the house, it kind of seems a little run down, like the siding's all shitty and stuff. So he stakes the place out until Catherine eventually emerges, talking to some woman. Catherine leaves, and Nick is following her again, and she's driving like she's definitely aware that she's being followed. So he goes back to where she lives, and she's getting undressed in the living room, you know, like you do sometimes. And, of course, he sits there and creepily watches her from outside without her knowing that he's there for sure. He goes back to the station, and his partner tells him about the professor who was murdered. Apparently, he was Catherine's counselor. Nick had looked through the mailbox at the house where Catherine went and found mail addressed to Hazel Dobkins. His partner sees him looking the name up, and it turns out this Hazel murdered her husband and three kids, which is pretty fucking wild. Nick goes to see Catherine, and she's got a bunch of newspaper clippings of Nick out on a table. She says she's using him as inspiration for her new book, and she's notably using an ice pick for its intended purpose like a fucking weirdo. And he asks her about the professor and Hazel Dobkins, and she plays off her connections to them like it's no big deal. Like, she was using Hazel to write stories, basically helping her understand the mind of a killer or whatever. But how the fuck is this woman who murdered her husband and kids not still imprisoned? What the fuck is up with that? So she starts grilling Nick about the shooting he was involved in however long ago, and I don't like Michael Douglas's default lip position a lot of times. It's like he's doing a face, and I'm not trying to be mean, of course, it just bugs me. So, she's getting right up next to him in kissing position, like, fucking do it already, Jesus. She's teasing him while asking him more about the shooting, and he tries shutting her down, but you can tell he just wants her so bad he can taste it, which I totally understand. But she goes too far with poking at him, and we then get some gratuitous making out with Catherine and her friend Roxy, who we met earlier... Nick goes back to grill Beth about who has access to the file because Catherine seemed to know way too much, and she says that Nilsson, who was that mean guy from the bar earlier, is one of the ones that actually has access. So he goes and he really throws Nilsson around, and assistant director Skinner from the X-Files helps rein him in, thank God. So by the way, if you ever get a chance, watch the first several seasons of the X-Files before Mulder goes missing. It's totally worth your time. Later on, Beth comes to his apartment, and he doesn't really want to see her, and they really fight with each other, and he says some pretty mean shit to her. So Beth says that she gave the file to Nilsson because she was trying to prevent Nick from being discharged. Nick gets a call in the night, and there's been another murder, and this can't be fucking good for Nick. It's Nilsson who died, which makes this look really fucking bad for Nick. They assume that it's Nick that did it, and since it was obviously made to look like that, they would normally think that, and he clearly had motive and all that stuff, so they interrogate him, and they obviously ask what he was doing the night before at the time of the murder, and Beth corroborates his story. Nick denies having murdered him, clearly, because, I mean, you gotta fucking say that at that point, because there's so many odds stacked against you. So before he leaves, he thanks Beth and has a talk with her about how Catherine was in school, and he attempts to apologize to her, but she doesn't really go for it. So Nick is convinced it's all Catherine, but his superiors won't buy it, and they say to stay the fuck away from it. And at some point, he was put on leave, and I don't remember that actually happening on screen, but apparently it did. So he leaves, and then of course he runs into Catherine immediately, and invites her up 
for a drink at his place because Nick's way of life is all about making good decisions. So he goes to make drinks and breaks up the ice with an ice pick, but Catherine insists that she take over. No one could ever be good with an ice pick if they didn't have a lot of practice using it to kill human beings. So anyway, they kind of have a back and forth, and Catherine asks if he has any coke, but he just plays it off with a Pepsi joke. This movie desperately needs comic relief. There's no fucking comic relief other than fucking Michael Douglas making these snide remarks, and it's fucking terrible. So she gives him another novel that she wrote about murder, and I feel like maybe that topic would get boring, but I guess if you change it up enough, it's not that bad. So she goes to leave and sees Nick's partner Gus on the way out, and he comes and warns Nick about what he's doing. We head to a nightclub where Nick sees Catherine partying very seductively, and he, like, follows her around the club, basically. There's a lot of over-the-shirt boob grabbing in this movie, and I'm honestly okay with it. She comes and dances on him like she's trying to literally fuck him through his clothes. Like, not just dry humping, but like actual penetration stuff, if that makes sense. He starts kind of kissing her, and she eventually gives in. So they go back and have sex, and he's going down on her, and their sex is a tad vanilla at first. It kind of starts to pick up a little bit. Their kissing is just fucking gross, though. Get it the fuck away from me. I don't like the... Ugh. It's the whole Michael Douglas lip position thing that I just don't like. You always hear that thing about how actresses get pressured to bear all in movies to be taken more seriously, but I don't think I've ever seen an actress where I was like, oh, she can't be that good unless I see some full frontal nudity from her. I don't imagine male actors get pressured like that at all, but maybe I'm wrong. Anywho, she binds his hands to the headboard, like in the murders, and he visibly freaks out a little bit. Then they're done after a bit, and and I've gotta ask, I've asked this before in my Getting Even With Dad slash Serving Sarah episode, but is Michael Douglas good-looking? Do people find him attractive? Is he a handsome man? Is that a thing? Because it perplexes me. So Catherine's friend Roxy comes and threatens to kill Nick if he doesn't stay away from Catherine, and she seems like a real sweetheart, this one. He actually calls her Rocky, but I looked it up, and it's definitely Roxy. It's not Rocky. He rubs it in Roxy's face and says Catherine was the fuck of the century, and Nick comes out to see Catherine at the lake, and they talk for a bit, and he asks her a lot of questions. She cautions him against the game he's playing, and he tells her that he's already in love with her, which seems like real stage five clinger talk. Then he goes to a country western bar and sees his partner Gus, and Gus deduces that Nick fucked Catherine pretty quickly. Gus gets super loud when they go to a restaurant and eat, and he's not happy about the situation Nick has put himself in, so he's yelling at him for everyone to hear, and it's a pretty big scene. Somebody's gonna die soon at this point. You just know it. You can feel it from the music. So Gus insists on driving home drunk, and basically Nick can't dissuade him from doing this. So Catherine's car is tailing Nick, who is on foot, and basically runs him over, but we don't know if it's really Catherine, but I feel like it's obvious that it's not her. We just see a woman's hands on the wheel, and that's it. And it's like, if it was really her, they would just show her face, and that would be it. Nick gets in his car and chases the car and struggles pretty bad with driving, honestly. They get into a game of chicken on a bridge, and her car flies off the edge. And I was thinking at the moment, you know, I couldn't remember from the first time I saw this, but I was thinking it was probably Roxy. And Circle gets the square. I was fucking right. Roxy is dead. So Nick is in a hard spot with having another run-in involving the Catherine case. Like, everyone on the force is basically 
openly calling him a piece of shit now. Nick gets an evaluation by a team of psychiatrists, including Dr. Beth. And of course, Nick makes reference to jerking off and sex during this because he's cool like that. I mean, I feel like if I'm in this scenario, even in the context of this movie, you'd be taking that situation very fucking seriously. So I don't know who I'd pick between Dr. Beth and Catherine, if that's what you're wondering. They're both very appealing, but there's nothing quite as hot as knowing someone might murder you in the heat of passion. I can always see both sides of it. So Nick goes and sees Catherine, who is upset about Roxy dying, of course, but it all seems like an act with her. So she's really playing the sympathy card, saying everyone she cares about dies, and then asks Nick to make love to her, so they do. And she talks about a girl she slept with in college who became obsessed with her. She says that the girl's name was Lisa Oberman, but I was betting that it was going to turn out to be Dr. Beth, and... He looks up Lisa Oberman, but she's not found, and then Catherine tells him later that it was Lisa Hoberman. So now we're to believe that Dr. Beth is the murderer because, you know, it turns out that this Lisa Hoberman is Beth, and I just don't, I'm not buying it. It's just not, not right. So Beth defends herself in a very reasonable way and points the finger back at Catherine. Beth is deducing what Catherine has done and points out that it makes no sense that it would be her which sounds like something a guilty person might say, to be fair. So Gus tries to talk sense to Nick about Catherine, but Nick is drinking her Kool-Aid pretty fucking bad. So Nick goes back to his apartment and he fucks Catherine again, which is a nice change of pace, but I mean, I get it. Nick goes to find Beth's ex-husband and finds out that he was shot dead five to six years before. Nick talks to an officer who says Beth was never a suspect, and he goes to see Catherine and she coldly tells Nick goodbye and asks him to get the fuck out. The book she was writing about him is done, so she really doesn't need him anymore, it seems. Gus runs into Nick later, and he says that he's got a lead on someone who knows about Catherine and Lisa Hoberman. Gus goes upstairs at this building and leaves Nick on the street, since Nick's on leave from the force with all the shit he's done. And I feel like, in this moment, you have to recognize that Gus is gonna die soon, he's just gonna. Nick sees someone in the building and tries to stop whatever's gonna happen, but Gus gets stabbed to death by an ice pick before Nick gets there. Nick then sees Beth near where Gus was, and she says that she was told to meet Gus there, and obviously Nick thinks that she's the murderer, so when she doesn't comply with keeping her hands out of her pockets, he shoots her. He checks her pocket after he kills her, and all she was reaching for was a keychain, but let's be honest, when somebody has a gun on you, and they tell you not to put your hands in your fucking pockets, you don't put your hands anywhere near your fucking pockets. So obviously the police come after the two deaths and want to know what happened, and in Beth's stuff they find that she had all these pictures of Catherine, and Nick gets reinstated, I guess. He comes back home and finds Catherine, who is sympathetic over Beth, and she heard about Beth on the news, I guess. So she says that she can't allow herself to care for Nick, so they fuck again, because that's just the trend that we're on, and they keep making you think that she's gonna kill him, but she doesn't. But the only thing I remember with this movie is the fucking ending. So first off, Nick is legitimately talking to her about having kids together already. Stage 5 clinger, man. I haven't gotten a great feel for how much time has passed since the beginning of the tale, but it seems pretty fucking early to be talking about that, even if you're thinking it. So as he's talking about kids, we see her go to reach for something under the bed, but he starts to backpedal on the kid talk and she decides against it. And they pan down beneath the bed and we see an ice pick in the area where she was reaching and the credits fucking roll. 
So yeah, that this one is fucking wild. So praise for this movie. The pacing was pretty solid. There's always something happening in it. The story was not half bad. I mean, it was a little little gratuitous on the old sex stuff. It kept you guessing the whole time. I mean, I felt like some stuff was pretty obvious that they were trying to mislead you and it wasn't working for me. So a little bit of criticism. Sometimes the movie just talks about sex for the fuck of it and it doesn't really add much to anything. I mean, it's just talking about sex for the fuck of it. So a little bit of trivia, this movie completely ignored DNA, which had been used in criminal investigations since the mid-1980s. The film was set in the year of its release, 1992, by which time DNA was regularly being used for crime investigations. Michael Douglas said in interviews that he wanted to star in the movie because he felt sex scenes were in danger of disappearing from Hollywood films due to the AIDS epidemic. There were no body doubles used in any of the sex scenes in this movie. Upon seeing this film, Steven Spielberg noticed Wayne Knight and immediately wanted him to play Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park from 1993. He stayed through the end credits just to find his name, and Knight ended up being the first actor cast in Jurassic Park. For info and ratings, we have a runtime of 128 minutes. I might say it was a tad long at that. Budget, $49 million. Opening weekend, $15.1 million. Worldwide gross, 117.7 million. IMDb rating, 7.0. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 57%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 63%. Personal rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. This one's great. I, I really enjoy it. It's just, there are some things about it that aren't super spectacular. Alright, moving on to Gone Girl. Released on October 3rd, 2014. Directed by David Fincher. He also directed Alien 3, which is one I still desperately need to see. I feel like I talk about it every time it comes up. It's just, I need to watch that movie, but I just haven't done it. He also made Seven, which is a solid crime thriller. I really enjoy that one still after all these years. He made Fight Club, which is either an upcoming episode or a previously covered episode on this podcast. I can't recall off the top of my head right now. I apologize for that, but that's a little sneaky peek if uh, it hasn't come out yet. He also did Zodiac, which is a very solid movie. I think I've talked about that before. He's fucking amazing. I just, I love his directing style. For the writer, we have Gillian Flynn, and this is actually based on Gillian Flynn's novel, Gone Girl. And so it's always good, I feel like, when you get the author of the book you're basing your movie on to do the writing for the actual script of the movie. It rarely doesn't pan out. So for producers, we have Arnon Milchin, Joshua Donan, Reese Witherspoon, and Scene Chafin. For the score, we have composers Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And just so you know, in case you weren't aware, Trent Reznor is actually the frontman of the band Nine Inch Nails. So that's pretty fucking interesting. Anyway, for the cast, we have Ben Affleck, who plays Nick Dunn. And he was in Dazed and Confused. That was probably one of the first movies I ever saw him in. I think that was one of his first movies, honestly. And he plays like a bully in that. I mean, that one's a classic. It's got a really, I mean, it's a pretty simplistic story. There's not really much of a plot to it, but it's its a good one. It's worth watching. He was also in Goodwill Hunting, which is supposedly him and Matt Damon actually wrote that movie together, and it turned out really well. It was really well delivered. He was in Daredevil, which is not a good movie at all, and I know what you're going to say, fanboys. Brandon, you really have to watch the director's cut. It's so much better. Getting so much better than what we got as a theatrical cut is not saying much at all. So 
It was not good. He was also in The Town, which is a solid movie. It's like a heist movie. It's about these bank robbers. And I know a lot of people aren't a fan of it because it's got this love story aspect to it. But I still think it's really fucking good. And Ben Affleck, last but not least, was also Batman in several DC movies. He was in Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. He was in Justice League, which there's a original theatrical cut of that. And then there's a much, much longer... Zack Snyder's Justice League cut of that movie. And I mean, honestly, the Zack Snyder cut is much better, but it's a lot of fucking movie to watch. He was also in Suicide Squad and, you know, he was supposed to get his own separate Batman movie, but he basically things just fell apart with it and it didn't end up happening. And then it became the Robert Pattinson one that we got. Next up, we have Rosamund Pike, who I have noted here is hot and she plays Amy Elliott Dunn. I remember seeing her first in the movie Die Another Day, which is a James Bond movie with Pierce Brosnan. It was the last one he did, and it was so notoriously stupid and over the top, and it had all of this obnoxious product placement in it. It was just fucking terrible, and she, her part is pretty small compared, because, I mean, Halle Berry was also in the movie, so, you know, it wasn't like she was front and center for the whole thing. She was also in Surrogates with Bruce Willis, and that one is a pretty fucking bad movie, but it's enjoyable to watch for me. Basically, people are using these surrogate bodies to do their day-to-day activities to basically not get injured, not get sick, not have any of these problems, and it's pretty fucking interesting, but it, it was very poorly executed. She was also in Jack Reacher, which is another one of those movies that I have to say it every time. If Tom Cruise wouldn't have been the guy that they cast in that movie, I would have absolutely loved it way more. I still like it. I still own it. But it's just not as good because it's Tom Cruise. I mean, and on top of that, Jack Reacher is like six and a half feet tall in the books. And basically, Tom Cruise is five foot seven if he's on his tippy toes. It's kind of insane to me. Then we have Neil Patrick Harris, who plays Desi Collings, and he was in Doogie Hauser. That's where he rose to prominence, and he played this child doctor, basically. And I don't remember the show very much. I remember him typing on his computer at the end of the show, or every episode, I should say. But, I mean, it was probably decent, probably not terrible. He was in How I Met Your Mother as Barney, and he was probably one of the most likable characters on the show, if not the most likable character. He had such a great womanizing personality, which I know it's not great to be womanizing, but his approach on things was just, it was really funny. Then we have Tyler Perry, who plays Tanner Bolt, and he was in the Medea movies that he also, I think, writes and directs. And I've never seen one of the Medea movies, and I don't know that I ever will. Then we have Carrie Coon, who plays Margot Dunn, and she was in Ghostbusters Afterlife, which was decent. I really didn't care for the ending piece where they had the hologram of fucking Harold Ramis come I didn't like that at all. I thought it was fucking weird. And then we have Kim Dickens, who plays Detective Rhonda Boney. For casting notes, David Fincher explained that one of the reasons he cast 35-year-old Rosamund Pike as Amy was that she was of unclear age in her appearance and could pass for an older or younger woman. Rosamund's revelation that she was an only child also proved to be a very appealing aspect for Amy's character in Fincher's opinion. 
Reese Witherspoon obtained the film rights from Gillian Flynn in June 2012 and decided to produce under her new production label, Pacific Standard, as she would be able to play the role of Amy. However, after her initial meeting with David Fincher on his vision of the film, Witherspoon withdrew from contention, realizing that she wasn't the right person to play the female lead, which is very true. It would have been very off-brand for Reese Witherspoon to play this part. So, like I said, Reese Witherspoon, Charlize Theron, Natalie Portman, Emily Blunt, Rooney Mara, Olivia Wilde, Abby Cornish, Jessica Chastain, and Julianne Hough were among those considered for Amy Dunn. Brad Pitt, Seth Rogen, Tom Cruise, and Ryan Reynolds were considered to play Nick Dunn at different stages of production. Can you tell which of those four actors is not like the others? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at you, all right? For the plot synopsis, we have a man whose wife has seemingly vanished, is being targeted as a prime suspect in her disappearance, as evidence against him comes to the light and media attention mounts. All right, guys, let's dive right into this fucking plot. All right, so... Ben Affleck, as Nick Dunn, kicks off the movie with this little voiceover. His wife is laying on him, and he's stroking her hair, and he's talking about his wife's head and wanting to crack it open and unspool her brains, trying to understand what's going on in there. And I gotta say, right off the bat, I just love the way David Fincher movies look. They just have such great aesthetics. So Nick is standing out in the road by his house, seemingly confused, and he goes to a bar and the female bartender seems fed up with his shit, and this bartender turns out to be his sister, Margot Dunn, played by Carrie Coon. Nick owns the bar, by the way, and we get voiceover from Rossman Pike as Amy Dunn. We see how the happy couple basically met, and Rossman was honestly fucking perfect for this role, like alluring and terrifying all wrapped into one. So fucking great. So they chat a little bit, and they go out on the town, he insists that he kiss her, and she eventually gives in, and they have sex. Must be fucking nice. Back at the bar in present day, we get more of Nick and Margot, and they talk about these little riddle-filled scavenger hunts that Amy does for their anniversaries. Nick comes home, and the front door is wide open, and the cat's outside. He sees a destroyed glass coffee table in the living room. Amy appears to be gone, girl. He calls the police, and they show up pretty quick, and he explains the situation, and they ask him about himself, and the female officer is Detective Rhonda Boney, played by Kim Dickens, and her male partner hasn't said shit yet, and spoiler alert, he never really fucking does. Their house is without flaw other than the coffee table at first glance, but the detective still spots some stuff that's out of place. Nick keeps asking if he should be concerned, and it's like, yeah, your fucking wife is missing, dude. Of course you should be concerned. So we find out his wife is actually the quasi-famous Amazing Amy character from these children's books, and that'd be kind of a weird type of famous, like, since you're just the basis for the character, but you're not really the character, I don't know, it'd, it'd be weird. So we keep bouncing between Nick and Amy, and Amy's parts have been flashbacks so far, because we really haven't established if she's still even alive. Amy and Nick are at an event some years ago, and they want her to do some press, basically, and she reluctantly agrees. Apparently, Amazing Amy is a series of books that her parents actually wrote about her, and Amy starts getting interviewed at a dinner table. Nick comes and is making a big show of pretending to interview her, too, and they do seem to really be into each other. But Nick proposes right fucking there, and I just feel like I wouldn't want to propose or be proposed to in this scenario at all. 
And now we're back at the police station, and they're letting Nick know how serious they're taking the missing persons case with a recent spike in violent crimes in the area. And I'm kind of left wondering, would they not be taking this so seriously if not for the spike in crimes? I mean, really? We find out Amy doesn't work, but she just keeps busy with reading and such, which sounds really exciting. Apparently, Amy doesn't have many friends either, and they question Nick about what he's been doing lately, and they point out how little Nick seems to know about Amy that most married couples might be aware of, like blood type. I mean, I don't even know my fucking blood type, come on. They're already making Nick out to be this total asshole, and they chastise Nick for not calling Amy's parents by then, so he goes and he makes a call. The thing is, is that Nick has been with the detectives pretty fucking much ever since he found out that Amy was gone. And I mean, I do like this detective Rhonda. She really has a great personality. She's a real no-nonsense gal. Nick sees his dad, who was brought into the station, and he seems a little unwell in the head. They really lay into Nick for not being available when they called about his dad, but he was in the station with no service, and it really seems like Nick can't catch a break. Like, what was he supposed to do about that? But, you know, they're basically just labeling him a piece of shit now. Back with Amy, her and Nick were out together at a library, and Nick's being very flirty, and they fuck in the library, which I get. I mean, nothing more exciting than doing it in public, I assume. Back with Nick, in the present, he's staying with Margot, and she's asking him about what's going on, and we learn that Margot is not necessarily a huge fan of Amy. I mean, she doesn't hate her, but she's not crazy about her either. The police are setting up the crime scene at Nick's house, and they find an envelope that says Clue 1 on it, and they really hope it means something to Nick, and it's obviously one of the clues from her scavenger hunts for Nick. So, Margot is coaching Nick on how to look and act when they have the press conference. Amy's parents show up, and Nick addresses the press and doesn't really say much. The parents talk about Amy to the crowd, and they establish this whole website and headquarters dedicated to finding their daughter. Nick poses for a pic with a photo of Amy and smiles like a fucking idiot. I mean, you should really only have fucking grim expressions in this situation. Afterward, with Detective Boney present, the parents talk to Nick about Desi Collings, played by Neil Patrick Harris. Apparently, this Desi was obsessed with Amy in school and is clearly going to be a person of interest in this case. There seem to be quite a few of these guys Amy has had run-ins with. They just keep painting up Nick as completely ignorant about everything. And the first clue is, although this spot couldn't be any tighter, it's a cozy room for my favorite writer. Feels like it's kind of referring to Amy's vagina at first, since Nick is a writer, but uh, apparently the answer is his office, so there's that. So Nick says he knows the answer, and Amy's voiceover is such a nice creepy touch in this movie, it, it really is eerie listening to her talk. So they follow the clues, and they obviously get harder, and Boney finds a pair of red underwear in what you're supposed to understand is now Nick's office, and that was the answer to the first clue, and they find a second clue in the office. And at what I guess is his dad's house, Nick finds another clue on the table as the security alarm is going off, and he's having to get it cleared with the security company while it's all being very fucking loud. So Detective Boney seemingly followed Nick to his dad's, Nick decides he's going to solve the clues on his own and blows off the detectives, which is such a great call. I mean, hide stuff from the detectives who are growing increasingly suspicious of you. So I think we're seeing the clues get explained at least a little bit in these alternate Amy scene flashbacks, but I'm not positive. 
a while back, Amy's parents were out of money, and she said she'd given almost her whole trust fund to them, and this really aggravated Nick. Neither Nick nor Amy were employed at the time, and things were tight, so they really couldn't afford to lose that money. So back in the present, she's been gone for two days, and Nick comes to the Amy headquarters and sees almost all the characters we've established there. Detective Boney asks Nick about a potential friend of Amy's named Noel that Nick barely knows about, and he just assumed she was a casual acquaintance neighbor or something. It appears to be Penny from Happy Endings, a.k.a. Casey Wilson. She's fucking great. When Nick walks away, Boney's partner remarks on Nick being unlikable, Nick takes a picture with a strange woman and asks her to delete it right after because he was smiling like an asshole again, but she won't delete it and she gets very testy when he even asks, and I'm sure that won't come back at all to bite him in the ass even a little bit. So the investigation leads to a beach and everyone's searching for a body apparently. Boney is back at Nick's house asking Nick about some items that Nick and Amy should own but she can't find them anywhere. But you just know that they'll find them somewhere, and somehow it'll make Nick look really fucking bad. Nick is back at Margot's, clearly agitated by the whole experience he's been having. Back with Amy's flashbacks, we see her displeasure with when they moved to Missouri. She has her doubts about Nick being happy with her, despite him being happy to be home. We find out in the present that Nick has a mistress, and that seems not good for him in a lot of ways to have. So, one might suggest that infidelity both before and after his wife's disappearance, might make Nick seem like he either doesn't love his wife at the very least, or wants her out of the picture at the very worst. So he asks the mistress if she put the underwear in his office, and she doesn't really remember if she did, but that seems like something you totally forget about. It happens to me all the time. So he and the mistress fuck in the living room at Margot's, and Amy talks about Nick's mom's funeral, and how she used the last of her trust fund to buy him a bar, which only ended up costing more money to get started and operate. We see the unpleasant moments in their married life, and Amy really wants to have a baby, but Nick argues that it's just a bad time. So as the discussion escalates, Nick angrily and violently pushes Amy over, and in the voiceover, she says that she's now afraid of her own husband. Boney and her nameless partner go to ask a guy who deals drugs if he dealt any to Amy. He recognizes her because he doesn't really see a lot of Rossman Pike types around very often. The guy said that she was also asking for a gun, but the guy didn't deal in those. So we get more flashbacks. Amy's convinced that Nick wants out, but he just won't say it. And she contemplates whether or not he'd hurt her again. And it's a very concerning situation. Meanwhile, Nick wakes up with the mistress in the present and sneaks her out, but Margot sees it all, and she's super pissed about it, naturally. They argue back and forth about how he's been doing this for over a year, and Margot is just so fucking mad, she turns on the news to show Nick just how negatively he's being portrayed in the media as kind of a fuck you to him, basically. A man named Tanner Bolt, played by Tyler Perry, is a defense attorney guest on the news show. He defends Nick, and Marco suggests that Nick hire him. They have a cat, and I must say I would absolutely have Amy pegged as a cat person. Boney and her partner talk about the potential to arrest Nick, and Boney just says that they don't know enough and they can't really do that. So Nick heads to the candlelight vigil for Amy and makes sure that he has his Amy button on his lapel. And Nick asks the crowd to come forward if they know anything. And he specifically mentions that he had nothing to do with his wife's disappearance, which seems like a guilty thing to say. 
But honestly, you know, you just can't fucking win if people are already thinking it. Basically, he talks about how much he loves his wife, but he sounds like he's trying to convince himself. A woman in the crowd named Noel, who was the mysterious neighbor friend from earlier, yells out and asks what he did with his wife, his six weeks pregnant wife. At Nick's house, Boney shows Nick photos of Amy and the woman from the crowd versus the nature of how Nick portrayed their friendship. And basically, they're being all, you know, friendly and acting real happy with each other. And it just, it seems like it's just, what the fuck? Like, how could he not know about this person? So the detectives go on to explain that the whole crime scene seemed incredibly staged. Like, Boney pounds on the wall and pictures on the mantle fall, and they hadn't fallen over when the coffee table broke in the living room. So they show Nick the credit card statements that show him and Amy over $100,000 in debt, and Nick doesn't recognize the purchases at all or know about the debt even. Nick says he wants a lawyer for any further discussion that he and the police have, which is a good call and probably should have happened sooner. Margot arrives after the police leave and her and Nick yell at each other a bit. She's frustrated by all of Nick's lies, especially to her. So Nick lies when people talk about Amy being pregnant, and he says that she didn't want a baby, which we know that she at least claimed that she did. Margot leaves in a rage, and Nick goes to the next clue. Boney searches Nick's dad's house, and they want to know why Nick came there. So Nick tries to decipher the clue that he finds, but he's struggling pretty fucking hardcore. And there's something so intriguing about how we keep bouncing around to different characters and times, helping us establish what the backstories are. So Amy is doing voiceover, talking about the things that she's written in her diary. She acts afraid for her life. So Nick figures out the clue and finds all of the merchandise bought with the credit cards in his sister's shed. And we finally see Amy when she originally left and she was well aware of all Nick had been doing. Amy purposefully befriended the pregnant woman from the crowd because she thought that she was an idiot, and Amy got her on her side and played up their friendship in photographs. She created the money troubles herself. She bought a cheap getaway car. She played up the story about being pregnant to gain more sympathy. She did actually steal the pregnant Noelle's urine by turning off the water to the toilet and using the urine to create a positive pregnancy test. She's fucking diabolical and she's gorgeous so she makes herself bleed a lot to create this crime scene at the house and so amy completely transforms herself but she still looks a lot like she did and i feel like you could still probably tell who she is even if you just seen pictures of her on the news so amy is obviously very angry about nick and what he's done to her and i get it he's a bag of shit so she fucking bruises her face using a fucking ball peen hammer which would take some fucking willpower Back with Nick, he shows Margot where Amy stashed the merchandise in Margot's woodshed. Nick has figured out that at this point, Amy's framing him for her murder, which I feel like you should have known was going on as a viewer long before this. I mean, fucking pay attention. So they discuss how good Amy has done with all of this psycho shit, and we flash back to Amy after she's been gone one day. She's staying at this little cabin, and she meets a neighbor and puts on a decent southern accent. And then it's two days gone for Amy, and she goes and gets on a computer and looks up and finds her missing persons page. She remarks on Nick's dipshit smile in the pictures because, yes, he is a dipshit. The woman Amy meets, Greta, keeps hanging around and asking her stuff about herself. Amy obviously gave her a fake name. I don't really remember what it was, though, but I promise it's not really relevant. 
Amy is hiding her bruises behind sunglasses, and Greta recognizes this and asks her about it. So Amy tells her a story about going to surprise Nick and catching him with another woman, and it's really amazing how she does everything playing a total fucking idiot who doesn't really realize how obvious she's being, but she's actually trying to be obvious. She wants people to think that she's just dumb. So did I actually read that Ben Affleck was supposed to be playing 30 years old in this movie? Can that possibly be fucking true? I mean, they didn't even bother dyeing his hair darker. He looks like he's in his mid-40s. So meanwhile, Nick runs into Tanner Bolt in real life, and Bolt says he'll defend Nick's case. He explains what the game plan for the case will be, and Nick seems hopeful about his new lawyer. Nick goes to meet this man, Tommy, who was accused of raping and assaulting Amy previously, and it seems like a really good fucking person to be seen with if you're Nick. So Tommy was looking at 30 years to life, but he talked it down to not have to serve jail time or whatever. So Nick says that that's good, you know, he didn't have to do jail time. But Tommy points out that he has been unemployed for eight years due to having to put sex offender on all of his applications. So Tommy tells the story of what happened with Amy, and she treated him like a fixer-upper and made it her business to change him. And he tried to put distance between them and get out of the relationship. And she coerced him into sex and framed him for rape, basically. Annoying Noelle comes on the news, and they really play up what an idiot she's supposed to be. She's really well played by Casey Wilson. Amy is watching with Greta, and Greta has some not nice things to say about this case, and everyone is glued to the news show every fucking minute in this movie. So I heard Ben Affleck actually threw a shit fit when they wanted him to wear a Yankees hat in this one scene since he's a hardcore Red Sox fan. So he compromised with a Mets hat, and I just don't really understand why did it have to be a New York team? Aren't they in Missouri? Couldn't it maybe have been a Cardinals cap or something? So Nick goes to Desi's house, and Neil Patrick Harris is fucking great. He asks Desi why they stayed in touch and why they broke up, and Nick just tells Desi that the way he understands it, Desi stalked her and everything, and he wants to know if there's another side to the story. But Desi closes the door on Nick in disgust, and Desi seems like he's still definitely got a thing for Amy. So Boney and company are still chasing up leads, trying to figure out what's going on, and Bolt comes to see Nick and Margot, and they explain everything about Amy to him. So Bolt wants to know what is at their father's house, given the other clues have had major evidence linked to their locations, and Nick says he doesn't know. Later, the three of them are getting food, and Bolt points out that Margot could be linked as an accomplice in the case. So Amy is playing putt-putt one night. This is at the little little cabin rental place. She celebrates a hole-in-one and accidentally drops the money that she has and collects it in a panic and plays it off as nothing. But Greta probably fucking realizes something's going on at that point. So the press is crowding Margot on her way into her house where Nick is. Bolt wants Nick to tell all about his mistress. He says it will make people like Nick more, which I'm just not sure about. I mean, for instance, let's say a celebrity was being unfaithful to his wife of maybe 10 years, with whom he'd had perhaps three children, and he cheated on his wife with their nanny. I'm not really sure that people would look at that as relatable, nor would it garner sympathy. So Amy gets visited by Greta and the guy that's been hanging around with them, and Amy's getting geared up to move out, and they're acting like they want to help her clean up or something. But then they make it abundantly clear that they're really just looking for her money. So Greta points out all of these things about Amy that were fake, that she was like not answering to the name that she gave her and all this stuff. 
So they take the cash and they leave, and Amy is kind of fucked at this point. She gets caught sleeping in her car by a hotel security guard later, and is kind of freaking out. And then back with Nick, Bolt is coaching him on how to present himself to seem more sympathetic for an interview. He puts on a watch that Amy gave him for the appearance of it all, and Desi runs into Amy at the bar, and she makes up a story saying that she threatened to leave Nick, and that Nick threatened to find her and kill her. She tearfully talks about losing the baby, and she's playing poor fucking Desi like a fiddle. Desi tells her about how Nick came to see him, and he offers to set Amy up at his lake house because he's obviously still in love with her, and Nick gears up for his interview, and his mistress just happens to come forward before Nick could actually talk about it in his interview, so it kind of blows up his shit. The shit against Nick is really fucking mounting up at this point. Bolt tells Nick that they now have to go on the defensive with the case. While prepping for the interview, Nick smiles at the fucking makeup artist like a yutz. Afterwards, Bolt tells Nick not to show his face anywhere anymore. Desi and Amy go to the lake house, and he's hospitable, and he's letting her get all cleaned up and stuff. I know what's inevitably coming at this point. The most memorable scene of the movie, probably. We've got a little bit, I think, but it's definitely coming. So Desi starts kissing her and says that he won't let her get away again. We see Desi has this huge security system with a ton of cameras. She really wants to get Desi to sympathize with her, but he doesn't really need any help for that. The interview with Nick airs on a Diane Sawyer type show, and the woman really gives him a lot of fucking shit about how unlikable he is. Amy and Desi are watching and judging. Nick pleads with Amy to come back and says how he'll change and all of this stuff. Apparently, Nick was well-received after the interview, and the police show up at Margot's with a warrant, which is where all of the stuff is in the shed, so, you know, he's kind of fucked. So he should have just told them about this, but he thought he'd solve the case himself, I guess, like a fucking moron. Desi pleads with Amy that she's left him dangling and wants her to make a decision, and she lets out some crocodile tears about what she's been going through. Bolt tells Nick that the only thing the cops want from him is a confession without a body, presumably. So the cops show Nick pages from Amy's diary, and he tells the truth about some things, but he lies about pushing Amy. They found something in his office fireplace they believe to be the murder weapon, and they place him under arrest. Desi goes to leave, but... Amy starts making out with him, and then he finally goes. Amy stages a graphic scene for the security cameras, making it seem like Desi assaulted her. Bolt bailed Nick out of jail, and they get mobbed by press as they head out to take Nick home. And wow, I must have been missing these, but Amy's been gone a month at this point, and I don't know if I missed a ton of them or if they just really jumped forward. So she's further making herself look assaulted, and she makes Desi want to fuck her, but she doesn't really have to work very hard to make that happen either. So she blows him, and he's thrusting, and she fucking slits his throat with a fucking box cutter, and the blood gets everywhere. And this scene is so fucking cool, guys. It just keeps flashing with little glimpses at a time of her murdering him. It's like quick individual shots from different angles, and it's just flashing, and it's fucking awesome. So now Desi is dead, and Amy is covered in fucking blood. Such a great scene. So Amy returns to Nick, 
and the press is all around as Nick quietly calls her a bitch to her face. At this point, there's roughly 20 minutes to go in the movie, and I honestly can't fucking believe it because I didn't think there was that much time where she was back in this movie. So now we're getting Amy's version of what happened, and she paints Desi up as a real fucking monster, saying that since high school, he wouldn't ever go away. Boney grills her about the murder weapon and the credit card purchases, and she's dismissive with her answers, saying Nick made the purchases and she just nagged him, but he kept doing it. So she goes on about these awful things that Desi did. You know, he tied her up, he starved her, he shaved her, things like that. Amy criticizes Boney for her incompetence because it could have gotten Nick on death row. Seriously, this woman is fucking brilliant. Like, Amy is just fucking ridiculous. Bolt addresses the press and says they should all be grateful for the miracle of Amy returning. Nick takes Amy home and takes her inside, and Amy tells him the Nick on TV is the right man he needs to be because he was telling her what she wanted to hear. She makes him get naked to prove he's not wearing a wire, and Nick says that he's going to leave Amy because of what she's done, obviously. So she tells him it's not a good idea because of the monster he is, basically, and that's how they'll treat him, and it's pretty fucking true. So they go to bed in separate rooms, and Nick stays up thinking, and she's been home for a fucking day, and there are still a lot of these news vans outside. And they're doing a press conference, and they ask what's next, and Amy says that she'll make it work with Nick. And Amy is keeping up appearances everywhere and still appearing on the news and things like that. Nick pleads with Boney about investigating Amy, and Boney says that they fucked up, and the case is now with the feds. This might be the most notes that I've ever had for a fucking movie. I don't know, though, because I only recently started numbering my notes, and I used to bullet, so I, I don't want to convert them all over to numbers to find out. So anyway, Amy makes Nick say that he bought the stuff with the credit cards, and the woman from the news comes to interview Nick and Amy, and I forgot how fucking long Amy was back at the end of this movie. So Amy, I guess, is really pregnant now, and Nick wants a paternity test and is threatening to leave still. And I mean, like a real class act, Nick grabs Amy's head and smashes it against the wall behind her. She tells him that the only time he liked himself was when he was pretending to be someone that she liked. She's basically giving him no choice but to stay. So Nick points out how toxic their relationship is, but Amy says that's marriage. Nick talks to Margot about the baby, and he's considering staying with her, and Margot is just fucking devastated by the reality of it all. So they announce in the interview that they're going to be parents, and then the movie ends like it began, with her laying on him, and him stroking her hair, and he's talking about what a fucking psychopath she is. So that's the end of the movie, so praise for this movie. The overall look and feel of this movie is perfect. Every scene is like a puzzle piece that this movie would be incomplete without, honestly. All of the performances, especially Rossman Pike, I just fucking love it. So criticism, I get that it's kind of the point, but our leads are playing very unlikable people. They're not very enjoyable. So for trivia, for her performance, Rosamund Pike drew inspiration from Nicole Kidman's performance in To Die For from 1995 and Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct from 1992. Connective tissue, motherfucker! She also studied Carolyn Bissett Kennedy, wife of John F. Kennedy Jr., for her body language and aloof mood. David Fincher shot an incredible 500 hours of material over the 100-day shoot, which is an average of 5 hours per day, which I guess is a lot. I don't really know, honestly. 
Most of the doors and windows in daytime interior scenes were fitted with green screens and had the backgrounds added in later due to the inabilities to expose for interiors without the outdoors blowing out. An earlier version of the screenplay was 177 pages long. If that version of the screenplay had been the one used to shoot the film, it would have been roughly 2 hours and 57 minutes long. Heather Graham sought to option the rights to the original book to produce and star in the role of Amy Elliott Dunn, but the rights had already been optioned by Reese Witherspoon's company Pacific Standard. Tom Cruise and Reese Witherspoon were initially desired for the lead roles, but they dropped out because neither of them wanted to perform nude. At the Volunteer Center, Margot tells Nick, you look like hammered shit. This exact same line is spoken by Drum in Steel Magnolias from 1989. That's also a connective tissue. I don't know if you realize that. Okay, so for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 149 minutes, a budget of 61 million, opening weekend 37.5 million, worldwide gross 369.3 million, IMDb rating 8.1, Rotten Tomato Critic score 88%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 87%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. I love this one. It's so fucking intense and creepy. It's so great. Definitely worth watching. All right, everyone. Well, I appreciate you stopping by, as always. And you know, it's great that uh, I'm, I'm getting people listening to it. I'm really hoping to hear some feedbacks from some people, but what can you do? All right, so yeah, if you've got any suggestions or requests or anything like that, float them my way. I certainly will entertain them. All right, everyone, have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.